You've found the Digging Oak Island podcast, a podcaster's journey to discover the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. I'm Dave McBride. Thank you again for downloading and listening. Don't forget, you can help out the show by leaving us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. And also, I invite you to join us on Twitter and Facebook. You can follow the show by going to your search bar and hitting at Digging Oak Island. Okay, I am sorry, folks, for the late release of this podcast. The last couple of weeks have been doing it on Thursdays, but this just came out on Friday here. Uh, for those who don't know, I am a musician by trade, and with New Jersey, my state where I live, being back open for business, well, sort of back open, but open enough for some kind of St. Patrick's Day celebration, uh, it's a very busy time for me. Uh, if anyone out there wants to hear me play some Irish songs and talk about Irish music, go to the podcast Sit Downs and Sessions. It's available everywhere you get your podcasts, everywhere you get this show. Download the March 13th episode called Virtual St. Patrick's Day Shenanigans. I do a bunch of songs on there, and me and my friend Chris talk a lot about Irish music and what it means to us and that kind of stuff. Anyway, all right, enough with the uh, shameless self-promotions here. It's time to get to your emails and messages, and we did have quite a few this week. Thank you so much, everyone, for that. Uh, honestly, your involvement in the show just means everything to me, so let's get started and let's get to through these. Um, okay, our first is from Mara, who uh, and, and anyone who has been following the Oak Island social media since last week's episode will know exactly where we're going here <laughs> and what she writes. Uh, she writes just simply, have you seen this? <clears throat> it's from a 1950s, 60s cosmetic company called Studio Girl. Now, along with these two sentences that Mara sent, uh, she also sent along a photo of an old brass lipstick tube that looks very, very much like Carrie Drayton's swagger stick topper from last week. So kudos to Laird for picking that one out. Now, if you haven't seen this yet, right, and it's been all over the various Oak Island social media pages, but if you yourself hasn't, haven't seen it yet, head over to our Facebook page to have a look. I'll stick this photo on there for you. Uh, but if you don't want to do that, just Google Studio Girl lipstick, you know, from 1950s, 1960s, and you'll find more than one image for yourself. Uh, what was the item last year that they said was like hundreds of years old? But weirdly, you could buy the exact same thing on eBay. I think it was a ring, right? Well, here we go again. Will they ever bother telling us the truth of this item? I mean, Laird was onto it. Did any someone had to have looked this up? It took social media seconds to come up with this picture. You're telling me nobody in that room tried to do this, especially when somebody looked at it and said, maybe this is lipstick. I mean, <laughs> I can't defend this stuff. Well, I mean, like I said, will they ever bother telling us the truth of this item? Or do they really just want the viewers who don't follow social media or don't listen to podcasts to leave thinking something that isn't true, thinking that something that they found here might actually be something old and mysterious or something like they said, like the narrator said, could be actually part of the treasure. Now, compared to many... It is true, and I give a, this show a lot of passes. I know it doesn't sound like that, but I really do. But this type of thing, this just borders on the dishonest to me, and it really makes everyone involved look ridiculous. Laird being the one and only exception, right? He's the only person who got this in there. Okay, so with that in mind, let's go now to Peter who writes, that metal ring they found, why didn't they speculate it was from a pirate's peg leg? You know, the part of the leg stump rests on the wood part as it's... <laughs> And where are the other pirate artifacts? Pistols, gold teeth, bullets. Anyway, you get what he's saying. It reminds me of a joke. What has eight eyes, um, eight arms, and eight feet? Eight pirates. Uh, further, how do we know the road wasn't built to lead not to the treasure, but a pub or a brothel? <laughs> when they find the site of Miss Nancy's naughty, nautical hall of cavorting mermaids, I'll finally go, aha, it was pirates, Peter. Well, Peter, ex excellent point. I mean, I've heard Miss Nancy's place was over on Frog Island, but I don't know. Could it be? I have no idea. Okay, we can make jokes all day. Uh, but Peter, you are getting here at another thing that really gripes me, right? And that is the ridiculous speculation. And that goes back to this piece that we had the other day or the, this uh, piece of lipstick. <laughs> I can't even believe I'm saying it. Um the when the narrator speculates, right? When the narrator says, even for just a second, that this 
piece of 1960s lipstick that could probably bought off the shelf at Walgreens could actually be part of the treasure. There's no way to defend that. I mean, I can't, nobody, no, but no apologist can do that because what the narrator is doing, the narrator knows it's a piece of lipstick. By this point, they found this almost a year ago now. The narrator knows this isn't a piece of the treasure. The writers know this isn't a piece of the treasure. And if they didn't know, they can call and ask. But they stick it in there anyway to make you think that maybe, just maybe, what they found here wasn't a piece of lipstick from a dollar store, but instead some fascinating find that, you know, adds to the mystery of Oak Island. And I just don't like the way they do that. I just have a problem with that. Anyway, let's go. Let's move on. Let's get out of this and go to Scott who writes, Hi, Dave. Do I remember correctly that in the story of the discovery of the money pit, a depression was seen in the ground and above it was an oak tre- uh, in an oak tree with a pulley block and tackle attached to it? I was watching the new episode tonight and thinking about how the road in the swamp may have been intentionally hidden under the water and how the people that built it cleaned up after themselves. If that was the case, why would they do that only to leave a pulley in a tree above the pit where they supposedly hid their treasure? It doesn't make any sense that would be that they that they would be so sloppy. I guess another theory could be that someone used the pulley to recover the treasure wasn't trying to be secretive about it. I really enjoy the work. Keep up the great work, Scott. I, again, guys, I'm fumbling through this. I'm trying to get this recorded as quickly as possible because it's been such a busy week. So I'm, I apologize for the sloppiness in the uh, in my reading and in the editing here for the show. Anyway, Scott, back to what you wrote. Yes, indeed. The stories, and let me put that word stories in quotes. The stories around Oak Island certainly do not always match up with each other, even if they're about the same subject, right? One of those stories is the discovery of the money pit. You can read many different versions of it that are all old, but the details don't always match up. For instance, not every telling of the discovery of the money pit even mentions the block and tackle. So you see where I'm going here, right? You're absolutely correct that the two certainly seem like they don't make sense together. A block and tackle being left over. It just doesn't make any sense. But I don't think we will ever know for sure whether or not that block and tackle actually ever existed, or was it just added for effect, right? But we do know with a much higher degree of certainty that the evidence we're getting now in the Swamp Road, so I guess that's a way of, kind of a long way of saying I wouldn't worry about the block and tackle too much. And let's be honest, my friend, like you said, the block and tackle being left behind only makes sense for people removing the hidden treasure. And even that doesn't make that much sense, really, because for people hiding the hidden treasure, leaving a block and tackle behind, well, you might as well just have painted a giant red X on the ground and said, dig here, right? So it doesn't make any sense. It really would only be for somebody who already removed it. I guess they don't need it after they removed it. I have no idea. Anyway, again, I don't get too worried about it because I'm not sure it was ever actually there. It's a great question, Scott. I like the way you're thinking. Keep it up. Okay, it's time to head up to... To Canada and hear from Grant who writes, hi Dave, new listener and glad to join in on your podcast, enjoying the discussions. You mentioned in your last episode there was an odd comment by the archaeologist regarding the charcoal found along the Stone Road. I took it to mean they were speculating the charcoal could have come from uh, Phil, uh, could have come from Phil used to cover over the road. Thus, they believe the road may have been purposely buried. I think I picked up on that same concept in a previous episode. Been to Nova Scotia a lot, as my wife's family is from there. Actually been on Oak Island a few times, once for a tour. Definitely great experience. Can't say I've seen during my travels in Nova Scotia too many Samuel Ball monuments or other evidence. He was a man of such great wealth. Uh, I think it's the producers of the show trying to pump up the storyline. It's gotten to the point where my cheering on Gary Drayton in hopes that he finds a large golden cabbage. (laughs) You guys are funny this week. Regards, Grant in uh, British Columbia. Uh, Anyway, Grant, welcome to the show. Uh, Please share our show with any of your fellow Canadian Oak Island fans. Always great to get a Canadian perspective. I think you guys, uh, it's been more in your culture than even here in the United States. Okay, so I'm, I'm not sure I remember what I was even referring to. Uh, but you're correct in the substance here, which is they seem, and when I say they, I mean specifically Aaron Taylor and the folks working with him, they seem to be leaning towards the idea that this road was purposely buried in the swamp to hide it. And you'll see that in this episode as we get going. 
Now, if at the end of the season, the experts all agree whoever built this and worked here indeed cleaned up after themselves and then went through the trouble of burying the whole road to hide it. Now, that is indeed interesting and puzzling to me. Um, again, we're going to talk about this in a little bit, but let's see where this goes and where the charcoal leads us to. No mention of it this week, so I'm a, I, I, my fear is we won't be mentioning it anymore. Uh, my guess is that we're, uh, you know, if we're lucky, we'll hear more about that when the season ends or before the season ends. Now, Grant, are you saying there are no Samuel Ball Memorial Libraries or there's no Samuel Ball Concert Hall? Nobody went to Samuel Ball High School in and around the area? No, I'm not surprised because I'm fairly convinced that Ball did not find the golden cabbage. Uh, he just worked like crazy. He was really smart. He was really dedicated to his work. Um, and he worked really hard to grow and sell as much cabbage or whatever he was doing as he possibly could. He turned the money he made into good investments, into real estate and things like that. I have no doubt that Samuel Ball, and this is the important part, right? Samuel Ball overcame incredible odds incredible prejudices and challenges to his success that we that his success that we could not even comprehend right now but he was not as the narrator says one of the wealthiest men in the province and again we get into and we seem to have more of it this year than in the past this deliberate dishonesty for one thing i'll let you in on something i contacted a couple of historians from nova scotia uh, people not particularly interested in Oak Island, right? I thought they were the best people to talk to. And none of them ever heard of Samuel Ball. <laughs> They're not watchers of the Oak Island show. Um, no. So it seems hard for me to believe that academics specializing in Canadian history, especially from this time frame and in this area, wouldn't know the name of one of the quote-unquote richest men in the province, especially if that man was an escaped slave. I mean, my God, what would be a better story? Anyway, really, I've said enough on this. Um, I'm sure I'll come back to it again because it drives me nuts. And I think that, you know, the real, the real point we have to get to here in context with some of the other things that we've already mentioned is, you know, this thing that's bordering on the dishonesty. I, I just... I'm starting to worry about it. I'm starting to get less and less okay with it as I just find it happens more and more often. Okay, let me see who's next here. Let's go to Daryl. Um, he has another challenging one for us here, for sure. Uh, hello, Dave. While enjoying your listeners' emails, your responses and commentaries, I got thinking about coconut fiber. So here it goes. I'm going to slap this one out there and see what you think. Coconut fiber, or quar, was found at Smith's Cove by searchers. It was mentioned one time on the show that the coconut fiber was piled up in mounds on the beach, so it was sent off to be carbon dated, and resulted the results dated the fiber was between the 11th and 13th century. I have attached the results below, and he sent that to us, and that, that's, you know, there's a lot of carbon dating over the years, and this is one of them. I remember naysayers crying that carbon dating doesn't prove anything. Coconuts could have floated up from the Gulf Stream. The Gulf Stream flows from South America northwestward through the Caribbean, up the eastern USA and passes by Nova Scotia. My, my remarks were always, I've spent 30-odd years at sea, mostly in the North Atlantic, Nova Scotia, Newfoundland, also in the Caribbean, Gulf of Mexico, South America, Iceland, the Mediterranean, and I have yet to see one coconut float by. <laughs> Anyways, the other day I was surfing the info net, uh, and, and guess what? Palm tree coconuts are not indigenous to the Americas. Palm trees were first introduced to the Caribbean um, and the Americas by the Portuguese and Spanish at the end of the 16th century. In the 11th and 13th century, I doubt Europeans ever heard tell of a coconut unless they had traveled to the Holy Land. Arab writers of the 11th century AD referred to the extensive use of coconut coir for ship ropes and rigging. The fall of Accra in 1291 marked the destruction of the last remaining crusader refuge in the Holy Land. Did the Templars leave the Holy Land with their breakables packed away in Quar? Opine, Daryl. <laughs> no problem, my friend. Let's face it. 99% of what I do here is opine. So let's have at it. Um, listen, Daryl, you're getting far down the rabbit hole here. I mean, you're so far down that we can barely see anymore. Um, and I'm not sure... From what this is saying, what I'm reading here, that I have a rope long enough to pull you out of this rabbit hole, 
Mine is going to some very dark places, my friend. Really is. Think about it. <laughs> to answer your question with another question, why not, right? I mean, if you're willing to believe the Knights Templar filled a ship or two with the greatest and most important religious artifacts in the history of the Western world and then sailed them thousands of miles into a virtual unknown only to bury them a hundred feet deep on an island in the middle of nowhere and they're still there, then your backstory as to why they did it and how they did it, I mean, that's more plausible than the story itself, right? But I think you've probably already concluded from the tone of my voice that I don't believe that's what happened here. I've seen no evidence whatsoever to make me think otherwise. And Like I said, I'm getting worried about you, my man. I'm getting worried. Don't worry about coconuts and the Templars. <laughs> Thanks as always, Daryl. Keep them coming. I love hearing from you. And let's turn now to another email from our friend Steve in Ohio who writes... Had to weigh in on this one from episode 17. As the episode begins, Rick Craig, Billy, and historian Terry DeVoe are overlooking the paved road. Highlights of their conversation, he writes, and he's paraphrasing. Clotworthy must have been, that's the narrator, must have been a valuable treasure for an engineering feat like this. DeVoe said something like roads like this were designed to carry heavy loads. He also said there was probably a dock a little bit more to the sea, and then the stone road would have been put down to carry the loads from the dock to wherever they needed to take them. And then Rick says a ship comes in, a treasure is, or something is offloaded. It seems like they're overlooking the evidence that, for example, the eye of the swamp may have been a blue clay mine and that at least some manufacturing of pine tar was being done on the island. Exactly the same physics would be needed to, hev to get heavy loads off the island. I would imagine that an ox-pulled cart full of blue clay would be extremely heavy and require the same sort of infrastructure. It would also make more sense to create a permanent infrastructure if you were going to use it again and again. Moving a treasure may not have been worth that kind of long-term effort. They're very conveniently assuming that the goal was to get something onto the island and not off. Thanks, and keep up the great work, Steve. You know, Steve, after listening back to last week's podcast, I realized that I certainly gave this scene you speak of here something of a pass, I think. And I think it's because I just didn't really get it. I didn't get the point of what we were looking at. It was such a rush scene. It was so strange. I didn't know why Terry DeVoe was there. I, I don't even know what the team expected to get out of him. What was he going to say? I, I mean, I just, I just didn't get it. Steve, you're 100% correct in your conclusions here. Listen, let me put it like this. The team is on to something very strange. It certainly is. I'm going to talk about that more later. It speaks for itself, right? And between this road and the slipway that they found at Smith's Cove in years past, which I guess is not connected since it's been virtually forgotten about here, right? We're not seeing the two together. What we can say now with some fair degree of certainty is that something completely unknown to history, to recorded history, happened here on Oak Island. Why everyone feels the need to tie all of this into a treasure, that really speaks more to their collective, hopeful treasure hunter mindset which we've talked about many, many times. You know, it speaks more to that mindset than it does to the evidence and what the evidence is showing them. Why do they keep concluding that all of this, everything was built, all of this was done for the purpose of burying a treasure? Because for the most part, these guys are all convinced that that's what happened on Oak Island. That Oak Island was a farming place and wasn't very used for a lot and there wasn't anything here, but something before 1795 clandestine happened and that something was someone buried a treasure and that's what they want it to be right again we've talked about this last week and a few times even before that a treasure hunter is not an honest broker they aren't looking at the evidence and the things that they find here with even the slightest bit of skepticism that's why they're dedicating their lives to this hunt that's why they are pouring money into this money pit because they're already convinced we're the ones that need to be convincing, be convinced, not them. And the blue clay, <laughs> the blue clay. Do we all recall when Aaron Taylor said that they were uncovering, I think in the eye of the swamp, if I'm not mistaken, the site of what he called a blue clay mine? I think that was the end of last season, right? Yet, so far, no talk of blue clay this year. And why is that? Because it's difficult to shoehorn a blue clay mine into a narrative of buried treasure. The best you could do is say maybe they use the clay to seal off the water. 
it's just hard to do. The, the things, the two things just don't fit. A blue clay mine just doesn't fit in with the Ark of the Covenant being in there. But, you know, we got a little bit of it today. Maybe someday we'll go back and try to prove Taylor Wright in his in his theory that there was a blue clay mine there, an undocumented blue clay mine. What is it? Who knows? We haven't heard anything of it. I remember at the end of last season saying, could this be... Um, could this be the indigenous peoples? Could this be something ancient that maybe they have used? Can somebody look into this? Nothing. Nothing. Anyway, great email, Steve. Thank you so much again. Uh, now, with that email in mind, let me turn to another listener. Uh, this one with a great name. His name's Dave, who asks, uh, Loving the podcast, but a question kept nagging me during the March 9 episode. The narrator kept referring to the Stone Road as a way for ships to offload whatever treasure or valuables they were hiding. But he never mentioned the possibility that the road is there to load something onto ships. You see why we're saying this here. Could it be possible that some natural resources was taken from the island and loaded onto ships, timber, minerals, fresh water? I'm just guessing, but I don't. But since I don't know what ancient mariners needed for their ships, maybe the island was rich in something they desired. Uh, well, Dave, at the risk of repeating myself, because it doesn't feed the narrative of a treasure hunt is the reason why we don't talk about that, right? Of course, <laughs> of course, this road could have been built and used just as likely for loading things onto a ship as it is for unloading things. In fact, I think you could probably make a hell of an argument that the idea of building this road to load things onto a ship is a far more likely scenario than taking things off the ship and leaving them in a basically island in the middle of nowhere, right? And what heavy natural resource could they be loading onto the ship, you might ask? How about we ask the incredibly well-credentialed archaeologist Aaron Taylor, who thinks the swamp was a blue clay mine, if one might need a road to carry that clay off the island. Now, I haven't mentioned this before, mostly because I'm, I'm giving them really to the end of this season. I haven't really gone on about the blue clay and his finding of the mine at the end of the year, um, basically because I want to see what what this all comes to by the end of the season, but they better mention that blue clay here sooner or later. You're telling me an archaeologist told them this information last year and no one lifted a finger to try to prove or disprove it? Come on. It just seems ridiculous. Anyway, let's finish the email section on today's podcast with Mark, who helps me answer an email from a listener named Ginger last week. He writes, Hey Dave, quick message here. I am by no means a seismic expert. Just come across it once in a while. Seismic testing is, as you said, intended for deep targets here in Western Canada, mostly for detecting oil and gas depositories. As such, it is not great for use in shallower depths. Now, the question Ginger had was about how come this seismic and all the scanning couldn't pick up the road. Anyway, uh, you may recall, he continues, you may recall when Eagle Canada was brought on board, it was mentioned several times, definitely by Craig, that Eagle Canada specifically developed the methodology and seismic testing program for the Oak Island Venture. It stands to reason that in this light, Results may not be at the usual confidence level as they would be would be when used at greater depths. Different objects, layers in the ground, reflect the sound waves differently, allowing interpretation of what may be underground. It would, I think, detect voids as such, but simply a change in density, probably. With the road being so close underneath the surface, I doubt seismic would pick it up. Ground-penetrating radar would be a better tool for that, I'd say they probably use GPR to see where the road leads. I would. Okay, let me just stop here. This is a long email. Um, thank you, Mark, for that. There are two things here worth mentioning. I had more than one person say to me after they, you know, after they had been on the island, it's people who were involved in the show, that Eagle Canada did an enormous scan of the island. I mean, like dynamite everywhere. And yet we heard, honestly, only a very little about it from anything besides the swamp. I remember um, James McQuiston telling us, I think after last season, I mean, he's saying something like Eagle Canada just blanketed this whole place. They're doing an incredible, um, you know, scan of all this. I mean, have we really seen all of that? I, don't, I just don't know. If you recall the episode when we were introduced to the quote unquote ship anomaly, the one that listeners to this podcast will know, I call the SS Matty Blake. Um, and we know that was nothing unusual. They talked about their scan of the money pit area. And and 
but really only briefly mentioned it, right? I mean, there were some things here and there. I think 10X was something. Um, but they only briefly mentioned it. Remember what I tell you, what I tell you guys all the time about this stuff. If you don't hear about it again, right? If we get something like a little mention from Eagle Canada, despite the incredible cost this must have must have gone through to get this information, you can you can just assume that it doesn't help the answers that they got, the information they got in one way or another doesn't help push the treasure narrative. So it just gets forgotten about and we don't even think about it. So Eagle Canada says, oh, there might be a thing here and a thing there and we don't dig on it. We never hear about digging on it. But in the back of your mind, you'll always have that little, oh, that was strange. That's what they're trying to, that's what they're trying to accomplish. And you point out GPR too. And, and that's a good, good point you make there. Why not? I mean, with the swamp drained, they do a full GPR scan of the whole swamp. They've done GPR scans before. They have people who do it. Uh, I mean, I, I would assume they could do it this year, too. I have no idea. Maybe it's a challenge with COVID. Who knows? we got to give a lot of that stuff pass. Got to remember that. Um, and, you know, and maybe they did do it last year. We just haven't seen it, seen it yet. You know. Anyway, Mark continues. I think the tunnel Miss Ginger is talking about has been mentioned on the show a couple of times, mostly as a theory. The Randall book mentioned it as well. Um, the tunnel being an alternate entrance to the money pit and starting somewhere in the vicinity of the swamp. Speaking of the swamp, you notice in one of the aerial shots, they are digging the paved area again. Wonder if they're trying to link it to the road. He sends a screenshot below. I'm sure you've seen it a million times. Mark, um, thank you. Ginger is correct. She sent me that last last week about, you know, being a why isn't there supposed to be a tunnel under the swamp? And you and others have reminded me of that since that conversation. Um, since that podcast, uh, yes, there is a theory that there is a tunnel that begins in the swamp and then heads to the treasure. Here's the problem. There's zero there is zero evidence for such a theory. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, I've seen nothing, which is why I really don't worry about it all that much, honestly. I mean, when it comes to that kind of thing, I need to see something. And it's got to be more than notes in Fred Nolan's file cabinet. I mean, I got to see something there. Now, if I'm not mistaken, Randall Sullivan believes that there is a tunnel and an entrance to that tunnel somewhere that's now offshore. Now, what he's talking about is what we call a backdoor in, so to speak, um, you know, a backdoor to the treasure, a walk-in way to get the treasure so you don't have to dig a 100-foot hole in the ground in order to recover whatever it is you put there. Now, I certainly agree with that concept. It sure makes a lot of sense, uh, much more sense than digging a 100-foot hole to recover what you put down there. Uh, you know, uh, but... Anyway, I, again, it's I've heard it bandied about. I, I just it's not on my list. <laughs> anyway, Mark finishes, and finally, to do some moaning on my own. Did you notice the opening sequence? Rick was shown saying, "We found the smoking gun," with a big grin on his face. I don't recall that bit actually appearing in the episode. Any idea what that smoking gun would be? Looks a bit like they edited a bit of conversation and, pa and pasted it in out of context as usual. Anyways, time for a delicious Belgian beer. Cheers, Mark. Well, Mark, that does sound good. Uh, this being St. Patrick's Day week, though, I would recommend an Irish beer. But hey, what, what can I tell you? Cheers. Enjoy it. And yes, I am constantly trying to convince fans to stop listening and paying attention to trailers or previews or anything like that. They honestly are just a giant waste of your time and energy if what you're trying to do is gleam something out of them. Anyway, I know I'm leaving some messages and emails out here. I have a whole bunch of them. I promise I'll get to them next week, but I need to get to this week's episode. We're already going long here, and I'm already rambling like a crazy person. So let's finish up this segment with Seth. Uh, and let me just throw in one more. Howdy, Dave. First off... Thank you so much for your podcast. Every Oak Island podcast has its own charms, but yours is a thoughtful, informative companion that never fails to raise important questions and give us all more to think about. I now look forward to your podcast almost as much as I do the show. Well, thank you very, very much for that. Um, I'll be honest, I don't listen to any other um, Oak Island podcasts. I only really know of one. If there's more than that, great. Um, you know, the more the better. I mean, the more listeners to share around and to different opinions. And this is a, you know, this is an opinion based thing for sure. Not a whole lot of facts associated here. So, you know, everybody's perspective is great. Um, so anyway, I appreciate the kind words. Lately, fancy continues. Lately, fans seem to be expressing more than a little consternation with the show. And I've come to feel like I'm in the minority. 
In my opinion, the last couple of seasons have been more riveting than ever before. Allow me to explain. I was hooked on Oak Island from the very beginning, likely for the same reason you and all your listeners were. I'd assume the show would run a season or two until modern technology answered the question as to whether there was a treasure buried on Oak Island or not. It presented a binary scenario. The team would either find the treasure or their efforts would be for naught. Once it was clear that our best searching and drilling methods were no match for the glorious rock known as Oak Island, I remained a fan. Though not so much of the digging, but the individuals behind the shovels and the theories. The curse of Oak Island was a guilty pleasure that guaranteed an hour or two of escape that helped that <laughs> helped winters go by just a little quicker. The show's endless recaps, teases, and wild speculation did, however, eventually wear thin. But as the guys like to say, Semper Avante. <laughs> Then Smith's Cove happened. As they uncovered the slipway and other structures, the show departed the land of lore and speculation. A real mystery took its place. The stone feature was revealed. Now the pine tar kiln and the swamp road. The question is binary no longer. It's clear something significant happened on Oak Island. Finding out what that something was and why history has no record of it is utterly captivating. Oak Island went from being a show about Rick and Dan and whether or not their visions of buried gold were mere pipe dreams to being a project that has an entire team of experts and scientists genuinely excited by what they continue to uncover. It always seemed to be a long shot that someone went to comically absurd lengths to hide a treasure, but I'll be damned if there aren't casks and ox carts full of secrets for us to unlock. As for the formulaic nature of the show... I've even learned to love that too. Even though the, the legend of the Money Pit's discovery and the curse are all tall tales, they're the tall tales that led generations of searchers to Oak Island. Now, every time the show mentions them, it brings to mind the sense of wonder that filled Dan Blankenship's stubborn head and Rick's hopeful heart. The narrator's continuous, a cur curious tone and the script they give him to read even strikes me as the imagined voice that impelled scores of otherwise rational men to set off in search of buried treasure. Dave, you and your listeners usually beat me to the punch when it comes to questions raised in each episode. There is one thing that sort of bugged me since the beginning of the season. How in the wide world of sports did, they, did it take them eight years to introduce us to Dave McGinnis when they revealed that he was an archaeologist who was a direct descendant of Daniel McGinnis, my jaw hit the proverbial floor. Anyway, thank you again for all the work and passion you put into your podcast. I look forward to many more episodes and I genuinely hope to hear them uh, interrupted by sponsored messages. <laughs> Fair winds and following seas, Seth Gordon. Yes, Seth, um, I, I would love to be able to make some money off it. I've been given out, uh, uh, people have been telling me to do a Patreon or something like that. It's something we'll explore maybe after this season's over. It's just this, uh, you know, when the show is on, it's difficult to do all this and to get it all right. Anyway, Seth, thank you for your positivity. And for so wonderfully expressing what I think really, certainly I feel, and I think a lot of us feel. If we didn't feel what you just expressed there to some degree, um, it would be crazy to watch the show all the time. It would be even crazier to watch the show all the time and then spend time on social media. And it would be absolutely insane to watch the show all the time, spend time on social media about it, and then make a podcast. <laughs> Thank you again, Seth. I hope to hear from you again soon. Great, great perspective there. Now, don't forget, if you have any questions or comments for me, send them to diggingoakisland at gmail.com. Well, that was most certainly a long and very rambling section of emails. Um, I, again, I'm doing it on the fly here. I'm actually reading them to you without any script and just answering like as if we were alive. So uh, <laughs> sorry about all that. Anyway, it's time to discuss season eight, episode 18 of The Curse of Oak Island called Cannon Fodder. Now, this episode review section might be a little bit shorter than normal. I don't know. Probably not. I'm rambling a lot here because I'm honestly not sure how much I can add to what we saw here. But anyway, let's get started over at the Money Pit, where we see Charles Barkhouse and Terry Matheson continuing their project of following what seems to be a tunnel in this northwest section of the Money Pit area. The guys are digging a hole called C3. Now, there was once a time when these holes were given fun names, named after like people associated with Oak Island or the family and that kind of thing. 
But now with so many holes going down, these labels are really just based on their location. I was Somebody asked me that, what, what C3 meant. Uh, basically, they're just taking the whole area, plotting it on a grid, and C3 is kind of like, you know, you sunk my battleship kind of thing. Um, anyway, once again, they find wood in this hole, C3, at a depth of 87 feet, right where they expected to find it. And Terry mentions a couple of times that this is the sixth hole where they have found wood at this exact depth or very close to it which in his mind is a strong indicator that they are on some sort of tunnel, makes all the sense in the world, or at least some sort of underground structure that um, required wood at 87 feet. Now, honestly, I find this all very, very fascinating um, and very exciting, really. And I'll get to why I feel that way in just a second, but let me just first put a couple of things out there. One, in, in order for me to really buy into this, I think I'm going to need to see a visualization of these new findings. I need to know where exactly these holes are that they found wood at 87 feet, how they relate to each other, where they are in relationship to each other and relationship to the other holes and findings in the area. Up to this point, I don't think we've seen anything like that, at least not yet, at least not one that I can understand, right? I have a hard time reading some of the things that they give us quick glimpses of, but they haven't done a nice like graphic presentation to tell us, to show us what we're getting here, you know, at least not up to this point. You know, not yet. I really hope we get that at some point, because if for no other reason, that might convince the sort of little skeptical side of me and of the skeptics out there that they really are onto something new and undocumented here. Some something, some kind of tunnel. The other thing is that I have a question about is um, what are the dimensions of these finds beyond the 87 feet? Now, now all we ever hear about is wood at 87 feet. Um but how thick is the wood? If it's a tunnel, would you also be finding something else? Maybe like a void, maybe more wood directly above or below it, right? Something. And also, wouldn't those same things be found across these six holes? Meaning, if, you've, if this is the top of the tunnel, where's the rest of it? Now, the floor doesn't have to be made of wood, of course, but you get my meaning. You would find some sort of disturbed... Something you, you what you would find is some sort of common characteristic present in all of these holes outside of just this piece of wood. Does that make sense? Something that points towards it definitely being a tunnel. You know, disturbed dirt, maybe water, something like that. Here's my point. I don't have any idea what this is, but we need a better explanation and also a better visualization in order for us to really understand what it is we're looking at here. So far, most viewers only hear wood at 87 feet and six holes. Well, what does that mean? What does that mean ex exactly? And, I, and they know, and they could do a better job, and I'm just hoping they do it. And I'm here, here's, here's hoping that that happens before the end of the season. But I told you I, found this, I find this very exciting, and I do. And let me tell you why. Mostly because, what the hell is this? If it's a searcher tunnel then it's one I am unaware of. <laughs> I, I know of no such searcher tunnel uh, in the documented history of the dig um, at this depth and in this location. And also, it doesn't make any sense for a searcher to even have dug it. Let me explain. In 1804, the Onslow Company hit what they felt was the treasure, right? They got to the bottom of a certain, they dug to like 90-something feet, and then prodded down with a metal prod. They did this every time they stopped digging, and they hit the top of what they thought was a box. Next thing you know, they wake up the next morning, place is filled with water, you know, and the only thing they have to show for it is the inscribed stone. But that was 98 feet. Keep that in mind, because since then, everyone has tried to tunnel underneath 98 feet, right? And coming from a different angle with the hopes of avoiding the booby trap flood tunnel. What sense would it make to make to dig above the vault and then tunnel sideways and down again? I mean, this doesn't make any sense. So that's why I find this very intriguing. If this is a searcher tunnel, boy, this is a weird one, right? Because it's in a weird spot, it's at a weird depth, and there's no documentation of it. And I think, honestly, at the risk of sounding like an apologist here, this might be the most intriguing thing they've been onto in the money pit for quite some time. Okay, let's head over to lot 15. Now, this is the lot where they found the pine tar kiln earlier this season, so you know where it is. Um, 
Here we see Gary and David Frenetti, another nephew of Rick and Marty. They're metal detecting with the help of Michael John, um, who we've seen him before. Also, he's at the Wheel of the Excavator. They are digging this mound, which I think they thought, from what I remember right, is the spoils pile for maybe perhaps whoever dug the kiln itself. I think I'm right about that. I'm starting to lose track on Lot 15, I'll be honest with you. They keep going kind of back and forth to it very quickly, uh, not for too long. We're not really getting a story arc with it. We're just sort of getting these sporadical hits, so it's kind of hard to keep it straight. If you're doing a better job than I am, just let me know. First, they find this piece of huge piece of iron, a big, big thing. Um, in fact, they find three. Now, quickly, did anyone else notice the weird way these guys talk to each other after they found the second one? After finding two similar items, it was as if they were only expecting to find just one more. Go back and watch it again. Tell me what you think. Anyway, I'm not going to get too hung up on that. The guys think these iron pieces could have been used for ballast in a ship, which is basically you put weight at the bottom of a ship so that it wouldn't <laughs> tip over from the from the wind, right? It's a good guess. Um, a lot of this kind of stuff was used exactly for that, but it's apparently not correct because Charles Barkhouse, David Frenetti, and Dan Henske take these items up to Carmen Leg, our blacksmithing ep- expert. And he says that their legs off a signal cannon. Now, signal cannon is exactly what it sounds like. It's a smaller cannon, usually a much smaller caliber, used for I mean, signaling danger or signaling anything. Uh, they use it to start yacht races. You know, they're signaling cannons at yacht clubs and stuff like that. They're popular and been around forever. And he says, actually, this is uh, English construction for this cannon and probably dates back to the early 1700s. And in fact, he says this interesting thing that they must have been forcibly broken like perhaps blown off part of a explosion. Now, I'm not sure what to make of that. <laughs> I mean, listen, a cannon, even a signal cannon, is essentially an iron tube full of gunpowder. So imagining it blowing up doesn't seem all that out of the realm of possibility. And here's the thing about this, and and, and I get this a lot, I see this a lot on social media. The details that Carmen Leg uses to come up to this opinion are almost always chopped up and mostly out of the scenes so we don't get to see what we see is him look at these things and then he says oh it must be this from this time because that's all we're interested in we gotta get through real quick right we can't get any details from him we just very fast have to oh it's made by the english and before the money pit that's all anybody cares about right so that's what we hear but i'm going to because i hear a lot of people saying how did he come to these conclusions and all of a sudden I'm going to trust the guy. I'm going to trust that he knows what he's talking about because Lord knows he knows better than I do. So I'm going to trust his conclusions. And I I, I trust him. I, I don't think he'd put himself out there without really feeling he's an expert in this stuff, without really feeling he could back, you know, back his opinion up. And I'm 100% sure that the editors take out the stuff that they find boring, that maybe a lot of viewers would find boring, but that you and I, dear listener, would love to hear. Would love a director's cut. All right, so let's wrap this up over at the swamp, which really was the big focus of this episode. Now, we start with the narrator describing the road as potentially ancient. Now, I'm just curious what evidence we have of it being ancient or potentially ancient. Uh, other than the visual, right? Now, call me pedantic. I know people use words for all sorts of reasons and often ignore definitions of things, and I know ancient has a few different meanings to it. But on a show like this, on a network called the History Channel, I would hope the writers would have kind of a basic understanding of, his, of in the context of history, what it really means when you say ancient. Ancient means... <laughs> essentially in ballpark before the fall of the Roman Empire. Now we can debate the details of that, but no one would call the medieval period or the early colonial period ancient. But that seems to be what he's doing here. Now, honestly, it does look a lot like an ancient Roman road for sure. Uh, But I think we need a little more evidence on that, right? Before we start something beyond the aesthetic before we start calling it potentially ancient. Now there's, again, it does look like 
Rome, old Roman stone roads. Um, I mean, a lot of the Roman stone roads were flatter than this, uh, but there are a few out there that are, are not. Look at there's one in Edinburgh. I think I saw pictures of. Um, anyway, let me get past this one here and move on to other more important things. Now, I love how this all begins. The first scene here with Marty saying, "Quote: When you dig on Oak Island, you find things." <laughs> Well, they certainly do. He, he knew what he was talking about. They find more of these stakes, and it's uh, like a wooden stake that they found in the, la- the end of the last episode, which they thought was a surveying stake. Now, again, we don't get everything the experts are thinking here, and we certainly don't get the details behind their conclusions. But you can tell that Aaron Taylor is really excited by these. So there must be a lot more going on that he's talking about and why he's convinced this is such a big deal and these are indeed stakes than we're hearing, right? What they are saying is that by finding a few of these, and that three or four, right, all found in the same place, that indicates that this area was something very important, something that they had to plot out that would constitute a change. A lot of stakes in the survey stakes in an area constitutes maybe a turn in the road, right, or uh, something important, some sort of change. It makes sense to me. I, I understand where he's going here. It's important to mention the presence of this road does not, by the way, indicate the presence of a treasure in any way. Let's just get that out there. <laughs> okay. Now, later, Rick and David Frenetti uh, joined Billy Gerhart and Miriam Emerald at this potential turning point in the road. Now, side note, Rick makes mention of the weather closing in here, and that's the first mention we have of getting towards the end of the season. I'm not sure I have a confirmation yet as to how many episodes there are. But usually when he starts talking like that, there aren't many left. Anyway, keep that in mind. Rick finds a piece of what he calls puddled clay. Puddled clay just basically means clay that was pulled out of the ground and refined and used to for the purpose of sealing off water, making, you know, canals and that kind of thing. Amaral thinks that the clay might have been used to bind the road stones together, which makes sense in a swamp, right? There's water coming up from underneath it. The clay would be useful. Later in the war room, we have Craig Tester reporting on C-14 um, dating information from two of these stakes. I think there was two. Well, there's only two he gave uh, dates for. One dates back 1719 to 1826. This is carbon dating, so it's not nearly as accurate as the uh, dendrochronology testing. And the other dates 1636 to 1684. Now, it is weird for me. Uh, in my mind, I had a hard time with this one because I don't know why you would find two pieces of wood obviously cut for the same purpose really right next to each other, but yet be potentially at least 100 years apart in how old they are. I mean, I just think this is a weird find. Anyway, I don't know what to make of it. You know, Taylor says that this, along with other dating info that they have, points to what he calls, quote, more than one occupation period. Hard for me to say either way. This kind of gives a lot of more questions than answers. And that's the maddening thing, right, with this dating information. I mean, it's been all over the place. We have dating information from the 12th century up to the 19th century. So sooner or later, if we're going to get to an idea of what actually happened here, we're going to need to start zeroing in on what the dating information is that we want to follow to the end, right? Make sense? Later in the episode, while looking at the possible turn in the road, or maybe it's a fork in the road, I think we'll find that out next week, they find red rocks that are different from the rest. The swamp doctor, Ian Spooner's on the scene, and he calls this a quote-unquote interface and a sign of, quote, intense manipulation. Spooner also says that the rocks that we're seeing for the road are perfect for their job, right? They look like, um, like I said, other old roads, especially Roman ones, Um and they're the right size to pick up and carry and put there. They're not so big that you would need uh, you know, an excavator, which you wouldn't have back in you know whatever century back you want to go. Uh, again, Google, I think it's in Edinburgh. Google the road in, uh, Roman road in Edinburgh. It might be the right one. Anyway, now later they head to lot 13. Now this is the eastern edge of the swamp. And Gary is metal detecting um, over here. And they find iron embedded into a giant boulder. Tom Nolan comes by later and he says this is one that his father found i guess he saw them back in the day now remember um fred nolan claims to have found ring bolts in here we don't know what he did with them i don't think (laughs) Uh, the ones you see in the montage during this scene 
are not the ones Fred found. That's kind of misleading too, but that's not them. They're just, it's just stock footage, I guess. The conversation then turns to why someone would need a ring bolt this far up onto the land. But here again, again, doing a lot of whining here. The, the editors kind of fail us a little bit. They fail to show us how far this really is from the water or where the water could be or that kind of thing. Uh, again, you always want to get perspective and they don't give it to us a lot. The episode ends with a great quote from Marty. He says, quote, it really seems like someone put in a road that could be easily hidden. And then he calls it clandestine. This is fascinating stuff. This road is amazing. But let me end today's podcast with something of a caution for viewers. While I find this work fascinating and I want to know what this road is, who put it there and for what purpose, still ask yourself this. Are we so sure that finding the answers to those questions would then tell us with any level of certainty who dug the money pit and why? Think about that. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of the Digging Oak Island podcast. Again, I promise I'll clean these up in the <laughs> in the future. It's just such a crazy week for me uh, with my work um, that I just had to kind of squeeze this in for you guys. It felt like I was doing live radio again. Uh, please subscribe to the show if you don't already and uh, you know anywhere you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying the show, it helps us get more viewers or viewers helps us get more listeners. If you rate and review us on Apple podcasts or anywhere you get your um, your podcast five star rating, please. For some reason, it helps to get the word out in the show anyway. And a big thank you to everyone who's done so already. I uh, can't tell you how much I appreciate the kind words. Also, if you have any questions or comments and you want to send them directly to me, you can do so. Send me an email uh, at digginoakisland at gmail.com. And I always like to tell you a little warning. Keep in mind, if you send me an email or a message on one of the social media um, and you don't get an answer from me through that, listen to a future podcast because I'm probably answering on here. With that in mind, if you don't want your message read to the listening audience, just make a note of that for me on the email and we'll just go back and forth that way. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We're at Digging Oak Island. Give us a like or a follow there. And uh, I guess that's it. So until we speak again, I'm Dave McBride. Thank you for listening to Digging Oak Island. <laughs>